The prison population in America is, for most people, an afterthought. But what happens when those who are incarcerated leave and attempt to reestablish their economic lives? When you go out into the labor market, you may just sort of face discrimination from employers who are unwilling or, or unable to work with uh, individuals with a, with a criminal record. There's also the fact that you know, you've just spent potentially two or three years in prison not building useful skills often, and certainly not accumulating more experience in the labor market. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're exploring what happens when prisoners are released back into society and attempt to return to the labor market. In other words, when they try to make a living. What financial effect does time behind bars have on their lifetime earnings potential? And how does that play into the broader economy? My name is Evan Rose. I'm uh, the Neubauer Family Assistant, or a Neubauer Family Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. My favorite pie is definitely a mince pie, meat mince pie, the kind you would get down in the Antipodes in New Zealand or Australia. So to start, Evan, uh, I think most people are aware that the U.S. has an extraordinarily high rate of incarceration compared with other countries around the world. Can you give us a sense of how wide that difference is? Yes. The short answer is it's it's enormous. So uh, U.S. incarceration rates are something like 600 for every 100,000 people. Um, and, you know, of course, that's a number that's just exploded over the last couple of decades, starting in the 1970s, and just rose very, very rapidly. It actually peaked a little bit earlier in the sort of mid-2010s, and it's come down very slightly, partly due to some active efforts to reduce incarceration, and also slim, uh, partly due to some uh, uh, exogenous events like COVID. Uh, but that is a number that is possibly, you know, in the same league as some countries that you typically don't want to be in the same league as, like North Korea. And, you know, it's maybe also in the same league as some other countries that don't report their data particularly well, but this is you know, four, five, six, seven times higher than what you'd see in any other OECD developed country. So we really sort of stand alone in the extent to which we imprison our own population in the United States. And can you talk about the demographics of that population a bit? Yeah, I think um, as you probably, as many of your listeners probably know, the population that's imprisoned in the U.S. is not a random sample of the population. Incarceration disproportionately affects uh, people from low-income communities, and it disproportionately affects people from minority communities. In particular, Black and Hispanic men are just much more likely to be uh, incarcerated relative to their population average. In any given point in time, the share of the, pop the, the majority of the people who are incarcerated at any point in time might be white, but of course, the, you know, the white population is a much larger share of the overall population. But it's not uncommon in many states to see the you know, overrepresentation of, of black young men, for example, by a factor of three or four relative to their population share in the state. So we're going to talk today about what incarceration means for those who eventually get out in terms of their opportunities for employment. What are some of the primary challenges they face when they get back out into the world? Clearly, a criminal conviction itself is a, is a huge problem. But what else? Yeah, so I think there's a, a whole host of challenges that, that people face uh, during this process of what's sometimes referred to in the correction space as reintegration. You know, of course, the fact that you have a criminal record now may limit the types of opportunities you have access to in the labor market. 
And there can be sort of mechanical direct effects of that. Like some jobs you're just not going to be able to do if you have particular types of convictions. You're not going to be able to drive a school bus, for example, if you have a particular type of drug conviction on your record. You're not going to be able to work in some educational environments if you have different types of convictions. So some jobs are just sort of categorically out. Other types of jobs, um, even though the employer might not have an official policy of uh, not hiring people with particular types of convictions, they still may be unwilling to consider candidates with a particular type of conviction or just simply favor hiring a candidate when they can who doesn't have the particular criminal record. So when you go out into the labor market, you may just sort of face discrimination from employers who are unwilling or, or unable to work with uh, individuals with a, with a criminal record. There's also the fact that you know, you've just spent potentially two or three years in prison not building useful skills often, and certainly not accumulating more experience in the labor market. So there are uh, training programs and educational programs that uh, people have access to while they're incarcerated. In fact, most people who go to prison will end up getting a GED that's required in, in many places. But those programs could be quite limited, and often they're reserved for the population that manages to get transferred into the particular facilities that really have you know access to, to those programs and the ability to set them up. And then even still, you know, how does that experience compare to what you might have been able to learn on the job working in the labor market? It's probably tough to tell, but it's probably a, a lot worse uh, than what you would get there. So you get out and you face discrimination and your skill set has degraded potentially. And then the third thing I'll mention is that, you know, even if your skill set maybe hadn't changed, you just have been out of the labor market for maybe one or two or three years. So where do you even start? Who do you talk to? Uh, where do you go to find a job? Your networks may have decayed. You know, you might not have a previous employer that you can phone up and talk to about uh, any opportunities or they might have moved on as well. So that just sort of makes restarting from a cold start much harder um, than it would be if you sort of had been recently unemployed and, and were looking for a new opportunity now. And in terms of actual dollars, how does that translate uh, in, in terms of their ability to make a living? What does it do to their overall earning potential? Well, so this was sort of the research question we had in our in our paper. Um because we know that people who uh, go to prison uh, face enormous challenges like we've just discussed. But as you know, many of those challenges might be challenges that they would have faced regardless of whether or not they had spent time incarcerated. Hmm. So for example, we know that people who have a history of incarceration come in and out of the labor market a lot and have long spells of unemployment. In our data, for example, less than like half the population is just gonna have any W-2, which just means regular wage and salary earnings in a given year. So this is a population that's extremely disconnected to begin with. And, you know, that sort of disconnection can have the same sort of effects we just talked about, just decaying skills, degrading networks that makes it hard to, to get back in. So what we really were interested in this in this paper that we studied here was, is there a quantitative effect of spending time in prison on top of all those other challenges that people face? Or is it just that this community is, is so disadvantaged to begin with and face such extreme challenges that by the time you go to prison, that has an impact, but it's sort of small relative to these other existing challenges that, that you face as well. Hmm. All right. So let's move to the research here. And you are basically looking to, to find out what incarceration does to the labor market here in the U.S., what effect it has on those who are getting out. So tell us about what kind of data you were looking at and where it came from. What, what were you studying? Yeah, so if you want to study this question, there's two types of pieces of data you need. First, you need data about who's interacting with the criminal justice system. And I think you've seen an explosion of research in economics, as well as other disciplines, exploiting that data because it's becoming increasingly available as courts kind of digitize and make these records available and increasingly online. You've seen um, people being able to access that information more readily, including researchers like me. So we managed to get data from North Carolina from the early 90s to the present, which sort of spans the entire criminal justice system, you know, every arrest, 
how those arrests were prosecuted and then how those prosecutions were eventually, if convicted, were sentenced. And we also had access to data from a bunch of large counties in Ohio, where we had similar access to the same kind of thing, you know, court records and arrest records combined with incarceration records. So that's how we sort of know who's interacting with the justice system and who's going to prison. Of course, if you want to study labor market impacts, you also have to merge that with information on what people are doing in the labor market. And that turns out to actually be much harder. People have taken a variety of different approaches in the past. What we did was merge those criminal justice data to actually confidential IRS records. Hmm. So that's useful because, of course, if anybody files taxes like you might do every year, then we're going to see everything you put on your tax return. But it turns out that employers also, just as a matter of course, automatically report a bunch of stuff to the IRS uh, so there can be third-party verification of the things that you're reporting on your tax return. So anytime you have a job, you've probably gotten a W-2 before, regardless of whether or not you file taxes, that W-2 goes to the IRS and we can see uh, how much you're earning in the labor market through that channel. Um, the other, so it's it's great coverage and it's important because it doesn't require, we can see the earning information regardless of whether or not people actually report that information directly to the IRS. The other reason why the IRS data is, is I think, particularly well suited to this question is that this is a population who a lot of survey data has suggested, a lot of qualitative has, data has suggested, you know, is not only disattached from the labor market, but maybe works in alternative ways. Um, so maybe they're not working in a regular sort of nine to five wage an hour job, but maybe they're doing a lot of shift work or they're doing a lot of independent contracting work, thinking about sort of gig work. Exactly. And we can see that information in the IRS as well, because that's also third party reported through 1099s um, by employers like Uber or Thumbtack or, or who have you. So we were happy with this data because not only do we get to see what's in the labor market, but we also get to cover a broader set of labor market activities than people have been able to to measure for this population in the past. Why North Carolina and Ohio? The short answer is that that's where two things happened. One, we were able to get access to data that we think is sufficiently high quality that we could do this merge to the IRS and because we're credibly um, answer the resource questions we had. The second is that North Carolina and Ohio have institutional features, which make it easier for us to try to learn about the causal effects of uh, incarceration on labor market outcomes. And let me explain what I mean there a little bit. So, of course, you could just take this data, you could merge it, and we could just look at the labor market activity of who goes to prison and who doesn't. That's going to tell you something about what's going on. But what you're going to be doing there is mixing any effects that incarceration actually has on outcomes with the fact that the people who get sentenced to incarceration are different in some way. Hmm. Maybe they've committed more severe crimes, maybe they're older, maybe they have more extensive criminal history. So if you just look at those simple differences, you're going to be combining you know, the causal effects with what economists would call the selection bias due to those differences. So you need a strategy in the research to be able to pull those two things apart and parse the selection bias from the actual causal effects and what we what we're able to do in, in Ohio and North Carolina is use two different features of the institutions, and I'm happy to sort of walk you through and explain that allow us to do exactly that. And it's not always possible to do that in every jurisdiction, and and these are two places where we figured out a way to be able to do that. So that difference that you were just talking about, how how do you solve that problem? So the normally the way you would think about studying the causal effect of anything in many settings is to think about setting up a randomized controlled trial, right? So we know that the people who get incarcerated and do not are different. So let's set up an experiment where we can sort of randomly send some other people to prison and randomly not send some other people to prison and then look at their differences in outcomes. And just obviously that's never going to work in the setting. It would be radically unethical and you would never get anybody to agree to do it. And I wouldn't want to do it either. So what you have to find is some sort of quirk in the institutions and the data that let you approximate that experiment. And what we found in Ohio is that people are actually randomly assigned to judges, and judges seem to differ dramatically in the rate at which they send different defendants to prison and for how long they do. 
And you can imagine that that's sort of like a natural experiment that approximates this RCT because, you know, if I get Judge Tess and she's super harsh relative to Judge Evan and he's super lenient, then that's going to increase the chances I go to prison and for how long, but randomly in a way that's not correlated with anything about me. So that's what we exploit in Ohio. In North Carolina, we do something kind of similar, which is that whether or you not you go to prison and for how long is a is a function of your criminal history. And it has big jumps at sort of basically random points in your accumulation of criminal history. So maybe you pick up one extra misdemeanor in the past, and now the mandatory sentencing guidelines they use there actually say that, okay, this person actually should go to prison, or this should go to pr- person should go to prison for 10 months instead of three months. So you can sort of narrowly look at these differences across people with very small differences in their criminal history, and you get big differences in exposure to prison. And it's interesting that despite the fact that these states are so different, like we talk about, and that we use these different designs, the judges in Ohio and the sentencing guideline discontinuities in North Carolina, the results also end up being very, very similar, which is reassuring for us because, you know, none of these research designs are for free. You, you, there's some assumptions involved and you also want to sort of stress test them and make sure that the things you're doing are giving you a good sense of what you might have learned from that, that hypothetical experiment, which you could, of course, never run in this setting. All right. So let's walk through some of the findings here. Um, I think it's probably an obvious observation that labor market activity would drop off a cliff for those who are incarcerated by definition because they are behind bars. But for those who eventually get out, what happens in the first year or two for them? Yeah, so that that's exactly right. And in the paper, what we what we do is we try to separate between that mechanical effect that you just pointed out, which sometimes is called an incapacitation effect. I mean, if you're in prison, you can't work. And so, yeah, you're definitely incapacitated. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that's in some sense, that's one of the goals of prison is to incapacitate people right. who potentially might pose a public safety risk. And then you could think about those long run effects, which you might think of as, as a, some sort of potential for long run scarring due to all those channels you mentioned earlier. And what our data show is that those incapacitation effects, first of all, are, are quite important in a quantitative sense. So when you go to prison, you miss out on quite a bit of earnings that you would have been able to accrue if, if you hadn't gone to prison. Um, so despite the fact that people are quite disattached from the labor market and face extreme challenges, those who are not sent to prison, they do continue working and they earn several thousand dollars over the next couple of years. Going to prison means you sort of miss the opportunity to earn, the, earn that money. Then as people get released, what you see is a sort of gradual convergence where the effects of incarceration get smaller and smaller over time because there's less incapacitation going on and people have more time to sort of readjust and try to get back into the labor market. And when we look five uh, years after your case was actually first sentenced, we don't detect any effects on the level of earnings, so how much money you make in the labor market or whether or not you work at all. So the story at a high level really seems to be a big, important short-run incapacitation effect. But after you get out, it seems to be basically a return to status quo. You continue to work at the same levels you did before you went to prison and at the same level as your peers who were not initially sent to prison um, at the same time as you. That seems somewhat surprising. Yeah, we were surprised too for a few reasons. One that although there's some, you know, there's some ways in which incarceration may actually help your labor market activity when you get out through some educational programs like getting your GED and through some specific training. But we thought the sort of bulk of the qualitative evidence of the theory suggested that if anything, it should hurt. Um, so we, we scrutinized this really closely because we wanted to understand what was going on here. And I think the best way to think about it is that when you think about the treatment effect of going to incarceration on, on your labor market outcomes, you're always thinking about the effect of incarceration relative to a counterfactual world where you hadn't gone to prison. Mm-hmm. 
And what the story really seems to be here is about what's happening in that counterfactual world where you don't go to prison. And through our research design, we can actually estimate what the sort of labor market trajectories look like in that counterfactual world. And what you see is there's basically no growth in earnings and employment over the next decade for people who you know, might have gone to prison but got lucky and were spared a sentence um, at the time of their conviction. So this is kind of your control group. Exactly. This is the control group. And you can show that this control group was not only extremely disadvantaged prior to their case, but they continued to experience the same disadvantage over the next decade. Um, so if you go to prison, of course, you miss out on some opportunities to earn while you're incarcerated. But you, there's not a lot of catching up that has to be done relative to that control group because of the disattachment you see there. And I think the the, the message there is that there are many challenges faced uh, by individuals at risk of incarceration, and those challenges sort of continue to persist, even if you don't actually end up going to prison yourself. You got to remember that in this control group, in the counterfactual, people still have a conviction because they were still convicted of the crime, but they got a non-incarcerated sentence as well. You know, they still have been arrested in the past. And, you know, they also potentially face the challenges associated with managing a probation sentence or fines and fees and all the other sort of sentences, uh, punishments you might face if you're, if you're spared prison as well. And one way to think about our result is really just saying that those are the things that seem most critical for what determines the long run, uh, long run labor market activity, not the sort of marginal effect of also having to spend a year or two in prison on top of those existing challenges. But, but I do it's want so to just... remarkable to me that you would even call you know, time in prison, a marginal effect. Yeah. And I definitely don't want people to infer that we think that it's not a big deal. No, no, no. But, but just in terms of the outcomes that, yeah. it, that it doesn't seem to have um, an accelerator effect. Yeah. And I think that it speaks to the fact that the justice system and the population that interacts with it is already so concentrated in the, the segment of the population that faces such extreme disadvantage to begin with. And when, you know, you've been potentially facing a lot of challenges for a long time, it's difficult to push you much further. That, I think, is a, is a depressing message in many sense, because, you know, if we had learned that the marginal effect, so to speak, of incarceration was enormous for these long-run outcomes, that would suggest that as we continue to unwind mass incarceration, like we have a little bit over the last decade, we should see improvements in the labor market outcomes for the population that's at risk of incarceration and maybe also narrowing of some important um, equity gaps in labor market outcomes across groups that are more and less exposed or less exposed to incarceration. And I think that one of the things that I really take away from our research is that, of course, in reducing incarceration will help because it will reduce the these incapacitation effects and the earnings that people miss out on, but it's going to take more concentrated investment and thinking about sort of deeper systemic sources of inequality that put people in the position to even be at risk of incarceration to begin with. And that's, that's the real challenge that we need to think about in solving it in tandem with thinking about how to sort of reform the justice system and the incarceration system in positive ways. So I want to hear um, some numbers from you. And even though we're talking about the fact that you know, whether you are actually behind bars or not may not make the biggest difference. You are still behind financially speaking because of the time that you that you do spend there. So can you talk with us about what that means, both what what they're losing while they're behind bars and how that affects them when they come out? Yeah. So the message in our paper is not no effect of incarceration. The message is that there's this important lasting gap in your lifetime earnings 
uh, trajectory as a result of having to spend a couple of years in prison. So the number we get for actual uh, labor market earnings, wage earnings, W-2 earnings, is a reduction in cumulative earnings over the next decade of about $3,300. And that may not seem like very much, but in the control group, what we estimate is people would have only learned, earned roughly about $25,000. So we're talking about you know more than a 10 or 15% reduction in the total earnings that you would have had over that over that period. And that's a sizable chunk of the sort of uh, lifetime wealth that you might have accumulated over that period that could have also, of course, been spent in the communities that are most directly affected than incarceration and spent on, you know, the people in your family potentially who are relying on you um, to support them, children and partners. So that is not something to be trifled with in any sense. And what about in the global economy then, or at least in the U.S. economy? What does that translate into for what is lost Mm -hmm. by all of these people who have been incarcerated? Yeah, so you can do a little bit of a sort of back of the envelope calculation and just think about, okay, we have an estimate from our paper about how much people are losing in the labor market as a result of being incarcerated. And we can just multiply those numbers and get to the aggregate. And that number is enormous. So it's something like $6 billion in lost earnings every year, just due to this incapacitation effect. The fact that when you put somebody in prison, Otherwise, they might have been in the labor market earning money. And as I mentioned, I think it's important to remember that that's a big number. And it's not $6 billion that would have been spread evenly across the economy. It's $6 billion that would have been spent in some of the most disadvantaged communities in our big cities and, and across the country. Are there demographic differences at play here as well when you're looking at those dollar figures, those earnings figures? The, of course, the as a fraction of the total earnings for each population, that big number is is going to be bigger for, for example, young minority men, simply because the share of that population that is exposed to incarceration every year is very large. So certainly in some communities and in some demographic groups, that aggregate effect is going to be more important. The other thing, though, that you can think about is that, so that's a big number, and it suggests that we're losing a lot of potential earnings due to incarceration. We could also sort of ask the other question, which is say, well, suppose we added that number back into the economy, how much action would we get on really important disparities like the average earnings difference between white and black men in the labor market, for example? And that number is surprisingly small. So we estimate that the just simple mechanical effect of re- reducing incarceration would increase the average earnings for, for white men by about $57 and about uh, for all black men by about $220. But you know, best evidence from recent uh, work suggests that the black-white median earnings gap for black and white men is something like $21,000. Okay, so this is going to make a difference. And there's, there's important dollars that will be put back into the pockets of people who really need it. But as I mentioned earlier, what it really points to is the fact that this is just one of many issues and challenges and that shape disparities in the labor market. And that it points to maybe that other systemic forces and other potential issues play a much bigger role in in generating those disparities. We've been talking uh, entirely about men. Did you look at all about women in the prison system? Um, We don't. Well, let me say we did, but we don't learn very much. And fortunately, I suppose women are much less exposed to incarceration than men. Um, so as a result, there's just not a lot of women in, in our data that we can follow up, uh, you know, put through our research design and, and try to understand these same pattern of effects. So Evan, what does this research overall tell us about the consequences of the kind of mass incarceration that we see in the U.S., um, both on the individual level and for society as a whole? The way I would think about this is that mass incarceration 
is the cause of a lot of important structural issues and social problems that we see in the economy, including the fact that some individuals have substantially lower earnings than they would in a world without the same rise of incarceration. And of course, it also shows you that mass incarceration does contribute to important disparities that, and inequities that we see in the labor market, particularly between you know young black and young white men, for example. But I think it also shows you that the rise of incarceration over the last couple of decades is also in some sense a symptom of broader inequities and structural problems that we face in the educational system, in the labor market, and in other parts of the justice system. And I think this is just very important to come to remember because there's a tendency when we think about reforming the justice system to think that if we do something simple and, and relatively easy, like change sentencing policy in a way that slows the growth of incarceration or even reduces the incarceration rate, that we can ameliorate a lot of really important and pressing um, social issues that, that we face. And our research suggests that it will help, and we should be thinking about doing that. We should be doing that. But we also have to think about what are the those other forces that are causing people to interact with the justice system to begin with and putting people at risk of incarceration to begin with, because our research really shows that those are the things that also seem to be most determinative for people's labor market outcomes, uh, regardless of whether or not they become incarcerated. Evan Rose, thank you so much for helping us out today. No problem. It's great to be here. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.